The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 25. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is the greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even the lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and a, the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but unbelievers. Well, prophecy is not a sign for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is the word of the Lord. So, we are over eight months now into the study of 1 Corinthians. I'd have you open up your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, if you look at your feet in your row, there should be three or four Bibles in your row that you can grab from underneath one of the seats. If you don't have one, you can turn to your app. Sacred City has their own app on the iPhone or whatever knockoff iPhone that you have, and you can find that and follow along with us. It's going to be important. I'm actually going to go uh, verse by verse through chapter 14 this morning. Uh, If you're just joining us, listen, if you're just joining us, you've walked into the movie theater three quarters of the way through the movie, okay? And I can't catch you up to speed, what we've been talking about 
the first 13 chapters of the book of Corinthians, but uh, we've titled it Following Jesus in a Jacked Up Church. There's a lot of stuff going wrong in that church, uh, a lot of stuff that's going wrong in the human heart, and Paul's trying to apply the gospel to it. Um, and chapter 12, uh, Paul started talking about spiritual gifts. Gifts that when you become a Christian, the Spirit of God gives every single believer, he gives them spiritual gifts, and he starts talking about how those gifts are to be used. And he kind of has a rebuke in there, but then he drops in 1 Corinthians 13, right? The love chapter. And he, he's saying, let's talk about spiritual gifts, but don't forget the focus of spiritual gifts. The primacy, the, the, the goal of spiritual gifts is loving each other well. The gifts are meant to be done in the church in a way that builds up the church. They're meant to be done in love to build up the body, not further divide the church. And this is just, you know, this text that we're studying today has divided the church over thousands of years, but it's not meant to, okay? It's meant to be practiced and preached and performed in love to build up the church. So now in chapter 14, Paul is going to pick up kind of where he left off in chapter 12. So you got the spiritual gift sandwich, okay? Spiritual gifts, chapter 12, love is more important. Then chapter in 13, then chapter 14 back, he's going to pick back up with spiritual gifts. Now, the major concern on Paul's heart, okay, Paul's the author of 1 Corinthians. The major concern on Paul's heart throughout this chapter is the building up or the edification of the church at Corinth. The word he uses build up seven times in this text, okay? So he's talking about spiritual gifts, but he doesn't want them to divide, knowing that they do divide oftentimes, but he wants them to be done to build up the body, okay? Now, I'm in all kind of, I'm in deep water this morning, okay? So if you want to write me an email later, write me an email, okay? My assistant might answer that one, Uh, but... Now, I'll answer the email, but I'm not going to be able to hit everything this morning, but I'm going to do my best, okay? So here, here's, there are some people who read this text, and they read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where it says prophecies will cease and tongues will fade away. And they think that Paul meant that those gifts ceased with the apostles. That's called cessationism. The gifts have ceased. Um, I don't believe that's what Paul is saying. And the overwhelming, I believe the overwhelming evidence in the New Testament suggests that these gifts are still given by God to people in order to love and build up the church. Okay? Now look at verse 1. We're going to go verse by verse through this. Pursue love. Okay? Still, love is uh, the dominant thing that we should pursue. But, and earnestly or zealously. So he's saying, be passionate about desiring the spiritual gifts. Okay, that doesn't sound like a guy who's saying, you know, they're off limits, especially. So as you're pursuing the gifts, I want you to especially that you may prophesy. Okay. What is prophecy? That's the question that we have, okay? Let's keep reading, and we're going to come back to that question. Verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue, okay, there's something we've got to talk about, speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, 
The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Okay, so Paul is picking up this topic of spiritual gifts and he's talking about two of them. Okay, two gifts. He's talking about prophecy and speaking in tongues. All right, and he says, I want you to... I want you to focus on those. I want you to go after those. I want you to pursue those eagerly, all right, especially prophecy. Now, many of you might hear, some of you might be geeking out right now, like, I can't wait to see what he says. He's going to get himself in trouble, right? And some of you might just be clicking off. Prophecy, what? This is crazy talk, right? Let's get out the tarot cards. No, it's not what we're talking about, okay? It's not what we're talking about. And verse three, it's going to kind of show us what prophecy is, or one and three. So first off, we see... Uh, that prophecy is a speaking gift, right? He says the tongues speaking to God, prophecy speaks to men. All right, so there's one right there. Prophecy is a gift that in, that's involved in our speech. Okay, now let's look at verse three. The one who prophesies speaks to people, okay? Speaking gift for their what? Upbuilding. Okay, upbuilding. Now, Paul has been using this analogy that the church, the gathering of God's people, the church is not this building, but it's the ecclesia of God, the gathering of God's people. The church is a spiritual building. He he says that the, the church is built brick upon brick, that it's a spiritual building, okay? But built on, as he said earlier in this book, built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. So listen, he says prophecy is for the upbuilding. So something about a speaking gift that builds up the church. Okay, prophecy uses words to continue construction. All right, prophetic words build up the church into further and further into Christ-likeness. So prophetic speech is meant to make each and every one of us look more like Jesus and is meant to make our gathering look more like Jesus and look more like the kingdom of God. That's, the, that's what we're being built up into. So Paul says here, here's some guidelines. Prophetic speech speaks to men for the building up, the upbuilding of the church. Now, what else does it say? Verse three, for their upbuilding and encouragement. And encouragement. Now, this Greek word, encouragement, is paraklesis. Paraklesis. All right? The Holy Spirit is called our paraclete. Okay? So you can hear that same word. Our comforter, our encourager. So para means to call. Kaleo means to come alongside. Listen. Paleo means to call. Kaleo means to come alongside. So paraclesis is literally coming alongside of someone to let you know that you're there for them. So the Holy Spirit's called the paraclete. He comes alongside of us and encourages us and helps us and points us to Jesus and reminds us of everything that Jesus has said. He encourages and comforts us. So prophetic words are meant to be used in one sense when we come alongside someone. We walk with them, we talk with them, we communicate that we understand them and that we're encouraging them, again, encouraging them towards maturity in Christ. I hope you're already getting challenged by your idea of prophecy. If you think prophecy is just maybe a guy up on stage calling people out or maybe a guy on Oprah saying what your dead grandma wants to tell you from the grave, right? That prophecy, that's not 
necessarily prophecy. So we see it's for the upbuilding of the church. It's a speaking gift, but it's also for a, it's also a counseling gift. Prophecy is also meant to be used uh, in a missional community setting, in a fight club setting, in a two-on-two, three-on-three type setting, in a smaller setting where you're coming alongside someone and you're, you're using your words to encourage people towards Christ-likeness. And then lastly, we see in verse 3, prophecy speaks consolation. Now, what's consolation? Consolation is uh, prophetic words that bring comfort to the inflicted or suffering. Prophetic words that bring comfort to the afflicted or suffering. That many times when we're suffering, we can suffer wrongly and we can have wrong understanding of why we're suffering. And we can think that maybe we're suffering because God does not love us. Maybe we're suffering because God's looked at our sin. And God's judging us by our sin again. And maybe he's afflicting us for this purpose. And we can, we can suffer and go into despair. And prophetic words, somebody who's going to speak prophetically can come alongside and say, Brother, absolutely not. You are in the righteousness of Christ. You have been deemed righteous. Your suffering is not in vain. And your suffering is going to end in the glory of God and can result in joy. So this prophetic word, do you see how important this could be to the church? Right? You see this, that it's meant to encourage, it's meant to come alongside, it's meant to build up people into the body of Christ. So prophetic speech is very important to the body of Christ today. Commentator David Pryor says this about consolation. He says, consolation, prophetic speech and consolation calms the storms of fear, anxiety, and despair. It helps us rest In the presence of Jesus, it leads us away from the hectic bustle of daily affairs, away from the restlessness of this life into the great peace of God. Now, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So all scripture is breathed out by God. That's what we believe, right? And all scripture is profitable and beneficial for us to be building us up into Christ, including this stuff on, including this text on prophecy and tongues. But it's important for us, well, let me just, let me just, before I set any parameters, let me go here. Prophecy is the spiritual gift that is available to all Christians that takes, listen, takes the infallible word of God, takes the words of God, the wisdom of God, and speaks them into the lives of God's gathered people for their upbuilding and growth and grace. Now that's, well, I think it's a pretty good definition, so I'm going to say it again. Prophecy is the spiritual gift that is available to all Christians that takes the words of God and the wisdom of God and speaks them into the lives of God's gathered people for their upbuilding and growth and grace. That could be done, like we said, in a discipleship, you know, fight club setting. We call them fight club three on three. Uh, It could be a missional community setting. It could be a teaching setting, classroom setting. It could be in the gathered church like this morning type of setting. N.T. Wright says this, prophecy is God-given wisdom, understanding, and teaching to build up the local church. It does not have to be spontaneous to be prophetic. 
In verse 32, later on, he's going to say the spirit of prophets are subject to the prophets. So it's not like, oh, I got to say something right now. You can hold on and say it later. You can contemplate it, tell it to someone else. It doesn't have to be spontaneous. So as I preach this morning, it can be, it, it is oftentimes prophetic. And I've, I don't, someone said, do you just get up there and say, no, I don't just get up here and wing it. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I do not. If I just did, uh, I would say some very bad things, right? Absolutely not. And this leads us back into, so what, what kind of is prophecy and what is not prophecy? Listen, it's, it's helpful to, to, to kind of separate things and say there's, there was two types. There's two types of prophets. Okay. I'm just going to say there's biblical prophets, okay, inspired by God, infallible. That's what we believe. We believe God used them to write the New Testament, to write the Old Testament, to speak the words that need to be recorded here. But the prophetic gift today, so I kind of use that as capital P prophecy. The prophetic gift today that we walk in is kind of lowercase p prophecy. Okay, our prophecy, when I'm prophesying or when you're prophesying, you're trying, it's not infallible. Prophecy is not on the same level as scripture. The canon of scripture, that's the Bible here, is closed and complete. This is one reason why prophecy is, Paul says, is meant to be used in public. See, I'm supposed to speak something, thus says the Lord, right? I think this is what the Lord's saying. And then the body, the mature believers are meant to weigh it, to judge it according to the revealed word of God, right? That's what you're meant to do. So when someone comes up to you and says, if you've ever been to a charismatic church, and somebody comes up to you and says, brother, I have a word for you, or sister, I have a word for you, you be wary. Be wary. Most of the time, that's manipulation, Right? I have a word for you. Your dress is way too short. <laughs> right? I have a word from the Lord for you. Your kids have been really disobedient in kids' ministry. Right? Some kind of weird. Listen, I don't know if that's a word from the Lord or not. Right? Because most of the time when I get a word like that, it says punch you in the nose. Right? I have a word from the Lord. Boom! Nah, lights out. Right? I don't think that's a word from the Lord. I think that's manipulation for something you really wanted to say to me. So prophecy is meant to be used in a group setting. Three, four, that's fine. Where people can weigh it according to what we know to be absolutely true, the word of God. Okay? It's not infallible. Look at verse four. Let's keep moving. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies, look, here it is again, builds up the church. Verse five. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. Okay, but even more to prophesy. Now, context is key here. Paul is saying, Paul isn't saying, Paul isn't like necessarily saying prophecy is better than tongues. Okay, he's saying in the gathering of God's people, prophecy is more beneficial than tongues. So what is speaking in tongues? Here we go. What is speaking in tongues? All right, look at verse five. Now I want you, what's that word after you? All. Now I want you all to speak in tongues and even more to prophesy. So here, verse five, prophecy is a gift for anyone. But 
not everyone. All right, we've already read chapter 12, verse 30. He said, do you all speak in tongues? The answer was no, they do not all speak in tongues. So prophecy is a gift for anyone, but not everyone, right? You can't tell, you walk in and go, yeah, I think he's a prime candidate for gift of tongues, right? You can't judge that by somebody's look, right? So tongues are for this gift of tongues, whatever it is, it's for anyone, but not necessarily everyone. Now, what, else, what is it? Well, we see there, it's also another speaking gift, right? But this is weird. Verse 2 says, it's a gift that you speak not to men, but you speak to God. When you speak and men hear you, it's actually intelligible. Unintelligible, I'm sorry, unintelligible. So people listen and they're like, you sound crazy. That's not a language that I understand. That people don't understand it, but it is a language that God somehow understands. Verse four tells us that this gift of speaking in tongues doesn't build up the church necessarily, unless there's an interpretation of some kind that would come out in the form of prophecy, but, but speaking in tongues actually builds up the person. It builds up himself. Okay. So it's some kind of nourishment to his soul. Uh, N.T. Wright actually said it's that tongues are like a private language of love. That builds up the individual who uses the gift. That tongues are a form of prayer and a gift of speech, which though making sounds and using apparent or even actual languages, somehow bypasses the speaker's conscious mind. He says, my spirit prays and my mind is unfruitful. So somehow a person's spirit, we're, right, we're spirit. Somehow a person's spirit communes with the spirit of God in a way that bypasses the mind and it comes out in kind of crazy talk, it sounds like. Now, let's keep Reading, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets. Here again, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Now, get it, right? If I come speaking a language that you don't speak, how will you benefit from that? Man, that was a great sermon. Really? Because I have no idea what he said. Right? Maybe that's how you guys leave sometimes anyways. Right? Right? So there's got to be some kind of benefit to the body, Paul says, if it's going to be done in a public setting. Keep reading. He, he gives this illustration. If the bugle gives an indistinct, indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible... How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. So it's, he's really saying it's, it's useless in a corporate setting. It's useless in a public setting to speak in tongues without some kind of interpretation or, you know, quietly. If you do it out loud, it's just like you're speaking into the air because it's not going to build up the church at all. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are, look at this, eager, since you are zealous for the manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Now, right here, I, I, Paul 
is saying, since you are eager, since you are zealous, see, the Corinthians had a taste for the spiritual. And Paul doesn't, like, kind of quench that taste and say, you know, put the fire out on that taste. He doesn't downplay the spiritual at all. He doesn't set a roadblock up and say, don't go down that path where people talk in tongues and people prophesy and there's spiritual stuff going on. Don't go down there because that leads to spooky, crazy, emotional, psycho land, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't put up a roadblock and go, don't go there because when you go there, you're going to end up flopping around on the ground. You're going to end up being really crazy. He doesn't set up a roadblock. And this is a perfect opportunity. If Paul wanted to tell us that the gifts are going to cease, it's a perfect opportunity to say, to give us that roadblock. But what does he do instead? He doesn't give us a roadblock. He gives us guardrails. He says, I'm glad you're zealous for building up the church, but strive. Strive Verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. Here's the guardrails. What's good for the body? Now listen, we need to hear this in our individualistic, consumeristic society. This gathering is not about what's good for you individual. It's about what's good for the body of Christ. Okay? We, we have a tendency to want to turn our gathering into a consumeristic uh, avenue where I'm going to go to this church because they have a great kids ministry. Wrong. I'm going to go to this church because they have a great praise and worship ministry. I'm going to go to this church because they have a great prayer ministry. How does it serve my needs? And people even bounce in and out. I'm going to go here for my teenager, drop them off at youth ministry here, and then I'm going to go here for the praise and worship night. And we're using the church like, a, like, like we're a commodity. We're using the church in a consumeristic sense. And Paul says everything that's meant to be done is meant to build up the corporate body. Build us up. Your gifts are meant to build up the corporate body. That's what they're meant to do. Prophecy, build up. Tongues, build up if it's done rightly. Paul, in verse, let's keep reading. Let's just keep reading. I got a long ways to go. Verse 18. Oh, wait, where am I at? Verse 13. Therefore, One who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will also sing praise with my mind. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? To your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I I just pray for the, I, I pray that this spirit would permeate our gathering. That when we come together, we're coming together to build one another up. Not to be served individually. We come together to use our gifts in our missional communities, in our fight clubs, in the Sunday gathering to build one another up, not to get enough inspiration to post on Facebook and, and go out the rest of the week and just live our own lives separate from the body of Christ. That we come in to build one another up. Let's keep reading. I thank God, verse 18, is that where I'm at? 
Okay. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, in the gathering, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, scholar D.A. Carson says of this text right here, verse 18, that there is no stronger defense of the private use of tongues than this text right here. Paul does not downplay speaking in tongues at all. But he, he says, hey, I speak in tongues more than everyone. More than all of you, I speak in tongues. But in a gathering, I would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 in a tongue. So let's just work this in our mind. Let's bring it in, shake it around in our little logic factory up here. And just think, if he speaks in tongues more than everyone, but in the gathering, he would rather speak five intelligible words. Where is he doing all of his tongue talking? In private. In prayer. In his prayer closet before the Lord, the majority of his speaking in tongues is obviously taking place not in a corporate gathering, but alone. More than likely when he's shipwrecked, snake bitten, beaten, right? He's got a lot of time to do that. Let's keep reading. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. This is not the first time we've heard Paul talk like this. Am I correct? Grow up, right? When I was a child, I thought like a child, right? Put that childish ways behind. Paul's been saying that several times throughout this letter. It's time to grow up. It's time to put our thinking caps on, right? It's time to be mature minded. Now, this is what I... When the Apostle Paul, a guy like Paul, one of the most brilliant thinkers of this century, right, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, let's go ahead and put our thinking caps on. We're going to think like grown-ups now. We're not going to think like children anymore. Let's be mature-minded. You better buckle up because he's about to drop an intellectually rich and spiritually deep bomb. In fact, I think Paul... He's absolutely brilliant. And right here, he's actually going to demonstrate what he's trying to teach the Corinthians. Okay? He's saying, grow up, think like mature adults who have the spirit of God and who rightly divide the word of God and speak it to one another in such a way that people are built up. He's saying, I want you to prophesy like this. And he's about to do it. Verse 21. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, Paul right here is quoting Isaiah 28, 11. Guys, I hope we're ready here because this is going to, this is going to get a little heady. It's going to have to. Okay. 28, 11. Paul's quoting Isaiah 28, 11 from the Old Testament. But he's quoting that a verse. He's quoting that verse and he's applying it to the speaking in tongue situation here in Corinth, which seems really strange at first. Now, 
I'm going to go on to verse 22 and we're going to back up in a second. Look at verse 22. Thus, tongues are a sign for believers are not, I'm sorry, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Whoa, 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 what? Tongues are a sign for unbelievers, but then they walk in and they say we're crazy. What? It seems like Paul's contradicting himself there, does it not? See, this text, I'll be honest, this text has beat me up for a decade. This text has confused me for at least a decade. Because it seems what Paul says in 22, he, it contradicts his conclusion in 23 through 25. So, Tongues are a sign for unbelievers, and yet when they walk in and they see you doing it, they'll think you crazy. So therefore, he says, prophecy is better. So then what is Paul, what is Paul trying to say in verse 22? How are tongues a sign for unbelievers? Now, first, it's important to understand how signs work. Right, signs do two things. I went to uh, Iowa City to meet with another uh, church planner and pastor in Iowa City this week. And on on the way to Iowa City, you're confronted with many different signs. Right, and signs do at least two things. One, they confirm to you that you're going in the right direction. Right, Iowa City, thirty miles. Okay, great. I'm not headed to Chicago. That's great. Right. So signs do one thing positively. They confirm that you're going in the right direction. Right. It's this way. Or, as we've all probably experienced, right, they also show us a negative sign. If we go there and say, Chicago, 28 miles, we say, oops, right? I'm headed in the wrong direction, okay? So a sign can simultaneously be a positive sign, you're moving in the right direction, and it can be a negative sign, you've gone in the wrong direction. Do we see that, right? Signs have a positive aspect and a negative aspect to them. Now, If you go to the Old Testament, there's a lot of signs. We've got some in the New Testament as well. Now, if you remember the story of the Passover, the Israelites were told to put what? Blood of the lamb on the doorpost, right? And this blood on the lamppost would be a sign, right? Now, that blood for the the Hebrews, that was a sign, of their deliverance. That was a sign that, they're sent, that they were going to be passed over and they were not going to receive judgment. That's the positive side of that sign, correct? But for uh, the Egyptians, when they saw that sign on an Israelite's door and they did not have that sign on their door, that was a negative sign to them. Your firstborn will die tonight because of your unbelief and your rebellion. So do you see how that sign, blood on the doorpost, is at once a negative and a positive sign? Do you see that? Baptism in the New Testament is the same way. 
Baptism is a positive sign and a seal for us. We are baptized and it signifies that our sins have been washed clean. That we are sinners and we go down into the water and we come up clean. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. But baptism also signifies a negative sign for an outsider or an unbeliever. Because it signifies if you are not cleansed, you are still filthy. You are still in your sins. You are still, you still need to be cleansed. Do you see how baptism is a positive and a negative sign? And for my son, as I baptize him, it's also a negative sign. If he begins to go off the rails, I can say, son, this behavior is not in line with your baptism. Do you remember that you were washed, that you were cleansed, that you were buried with Christ and resurrected with him? Christ reminds us that if we are not buried with him, that we'll be buried on our own. We'll drink the judgment on our own, right? So signs are a positive sign and a negative sign simultaneously, okay? So when Paul says here, you think, so this is what's going on. Corinthians getting together like a great charismatic church and they're talking in tongues and they're speaking in some language that people don't know what's going on and they're really excited about it. Why? Because it's just, it does a personal thing, right? It builds them up in the Lord. So it's kind, of a, it's kind of a selfish thing. They're getting really happy in the Lord and they're speaking in tongues and kind of acting crazy and unbelievers are walking in and they're going, you know what? When we speak in tongues and the unbeliever comes in, they're going to go, whoa, these people speak in another language and it's going to be a sign to them that, you know what? God is really here. The spirit's really moving. Let us be like that. And Paul goes, um, you're right on one count. It is a sign, but it's not a positive sign. It's actually a very negative sign. People walk in, they see you acting crazy, and they conclude you are, in fact, crazy. Now, how do you know that, Justin? Right? How do you get that from this text? See, this is what Paul's doing. He's saying, you think tongues are a sign. You're right, they are. But you need to go back and understand the narrative scripture. You need to go back and understand biblical theology. And you need to know that this sign is actually a negative sign. Because verse 21 here, guys, is a direct quote from Isaiah 28, 11. Okay? So we need to go back to the context of Isaiah 28, 11 to understand what Paul's trying to get across. See, Isaiah 28, 11 is when God, or I'm sorry, when Israel was being judged by God and they were captured by Assyria. Okay. A foreign nation had captured them and subjugated them. So when he says the strange lips and tongues, he's referring specifically to the Assyrian tongues that Israel was being captured and judged for losing faith in God. And they were forced to listen to tongues that they didn't understand. So just think a foreign army is capturing Israel and they're hearing Assyrian language being spoken to them. And that's a sign of judgment. That's a sign that they've rebelled from God. They're hearing unknown tongues. That's a sign that they've walked away and they've lost faith in the God of the scriptures and the God of the universe. So when 2811, Isaiah says this, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary. And this is repose. And he says this, yet they would not hear. See, Paul is quoting Isaiah. And in the context of Isaiah, tongues were a sign of God's judgment upon them for failing to believe and obey God. 
So Paul's saying, tongue's a sign, yes. A positive sign, no. So in this scenario, unbelievers walk in, they hear tongues, they think we're crazy, and then, listen, they leave as unbelievers, probably more convinced in their unbelief than they were before. They walk in, I didn't even understand that. That sounded crazy. They walk out. That's why I'm not a Christian. That's why I don't go to that gathering. That's why I don't believe that way. Look how crazy they are. That means they walk in with the wrath of God upon them. That if they died in that moment, the wrath of God would be satisfied in them and they would go to hell for eternity. That's what it means. But when when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, he removes the wrath of God from us. So that means these unbelievers come in, heard people talking in tongues, didn't understand what was going on, and then they left and the wrath of God remained on them. They were judged in a sense. That sign of tongues became a negative sign to them and they walk out as unbelievers the same way they walked in. But Paul says prophecy is different. Prophecy is meant to produce a different kind of result in the hearts of unbelievers. Look at verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, look, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare God is really among you. Oh my goodness. That's what this is all about. That's what the Sunday gathering is about. That's what the preaching of God's word is about. That's what prophecy is all about. Prophecy brings conviction. Tongues don't. Prophecy bring, it, prophecy calls unbelief into account. It uncovers the secrets of our hearts and it brings them out into the open. And it's meant to bring about humble repentance falling on our face. And it's meant to end in joyful worship and declaration of God's presence. God was really there. This is what our gathering should look like. Sunday morning, missional community, fight clubs, intelligible, prophetic speech that opens up the word of God and opens up the listeners' hearts. And if we do that, inspired by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, if we do that, it produces the the necessary loving outcome, which is faith, repentance, and worship. Faith, repentance, and worship. Now, it's doubtful that many pastors or churches would disagree with me on that. Our gatherings should be understandable. Our gatherings should be intelligible. Our gatherings should be focused on bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. But there are a lot of different approaches to this goal. And one that's really popular today is the separation between deep theological truth and evangelism. See, in many churches, they rightly say Sunday morning is about bringing people to faith. It's about the outsider. It's about people meeting Jesus. It's about evangelism. But oftentimes, these types of churches 
Uh, they actually do have a lot of people come to faith. They have a lot of people make decisions for Christ, maybe even walk an aisle. But then after a few years, many of their people, maybe even a few months, they want deeper teaching. And I've heard it said many times that the preacher says, you want deep? Here's deep. Bring someone to church. You are only as deep as the last person you brought to faith, the last person you brought to the gathering. So in a sense, they say, oh, you want deep? Shame on you for wanting something deeper. Bring people to Jesus. In this philosophy of ministry, theology is is supposed to take some kind of back seat to evangelism. It's believed that deep theology is actually a detractor to evangelism. But I think in this text, I think the Apostle Paul has shown us the exact opposite approach. Paul does not in any way dumb down for the unbeliever's sake. He doesn't say you can't talk about the deep things of God, deep theology in front of unbelievers or outsiders. Paul says that, no, we need to speak about the deep things of God in a way that will lead the unbeliever to faith and repentance in intelligible, thoughtful, powerful, convicting, and heart-revealing ways. And as we worship God in intelligible ways, unbelievers overhear us and are brought to see their need for Christ. And they'll turn from their unbelief and turn to worship God. That's our goal. And that's how evangelism and discipleship can take place within the same sermon, the same context, the same gathering, the same missional community setting. Evangelism and discipleship go on simultaneously. D.A. Carson says again that the assembled church is a place for intelligibility. Our God is a thinking, speaking God. And if we know him, we must learn to think his thoughts like him and after him. Listen, if we are centered on the gospel, I I love this text because Paul's talking about a missional church. He's talking about having a gathering that's deeply theological, deeply centered on the righteousness and and the work and the perfection of Jesus Christ. And yet he says, unbelievers are entering. Outsiders are entering. Outsiders, he wants it to be understandable and intelligible to outsiders who come in. And that's our prayer. That's our desire. That's our goal for our gatherings as well. That everything we do, if we're centered on the person and work of Jesus, if we're centered on the gospel, everything we do is missional. That means everything we do is simultaneously evangelistic and discipling believers. And if you understand, listen, if you understand the nature of sin, the root of it, if you understand the nature of our problems as humans, here's the key. Unbelievers and believers struggle in the same ways. We don't vary by kind, we vary by degree. See, both of our problems, unbelievers and believers, both of our problems are rooted in unbelief. Unbelievers have not yet placed, or we call them not yet believers, have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. But believers, we lack faith on a daily basis. 
We live like unbelievers much of the time. You fail to trust God to provide for your family. So you worry and you stress out. You get angry and you lash out. See, your sin and an unbeliever's sin all stem from unbelief. So what believers and unbelievers need, both is the gospel. We need to believe and trust that God is impeccably happy with me only because Jesus has traded places with me. He's not thrilled with me because I had a sinless day or hour or minute. He's thrilled with me because the work of Christ has been counted to me. The righteousness of Christ has been placed upon me. It's an alien righteousness to myself that I did not earn, but I get solely by the grace of God. The peace and the happiness that Jesus possessed as God is now mine. That he traded places with me. He took my worry. He took my stress. He took my anger. He took my sin on the cross so that I could take his place. And when I believe that, I experience that peace. Is that an objective reality? It's absolutely. It's already happened out there. But I experience it as I believe it, as I place my faith in it, as I continue to trust in it. So for an outsider, an unbeliever, you've not yet put your trust in Christ. But for a believer, we struggle to keep our faith and keep our trust in Christ on a daily basis. Listen, this is, this is the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus has taken your place. If you aren't a Christian, it's time to trade with him today. He will take your shame. He will take your guilt. He will take your sin and, and he will give you to trade. He will give you his cleanliness, his purity, his holiness, his righteousness. It's really a great deal. How about you give me your dirty t-shirt and I'll give you this fresh Armani suit. You know, I don't really know. I got this at Walmart. It's very, you know, it's got a lot of emotional ties to it. Right now, listen, and that, that analogy completely breaks down. That analogy completely breaks down because it's so much more. It's so much bigger than that. It's so much more brilliant than that than an Armani suit, right? And we're so much, uh, our righteousness and our works and the, the, the way that we try to measure up our shame and our guilt is so much dirtier than just a dirty, grungy t-shirt, right? And yet Christ says, that's the exchange. Your unrighteousness for my righteousness. But, but then I'll, won't I go out and won't I sin some more? Won't I still get dirty? Absolutely, but you'll never be unrighteous because his is an eternal righteousness, this is a forever righteousness. This is a salvation that you cannot lose because you can't squirm your way out of his hand. You can't fight your way out. Jesus said, I've never lost a sheep. And guess what? He ain't going to ruin his reputation on you. Let's just say that, right? You don't know. Yeah, 
I don't know, but I know the depths of my heart. I know the wickedness of my heart. And I know Christ is stronger still. So if you're an unbeliever this morning, that's what I offer you. Exchange it. And if you're a believer who struggles constantly with remembering how filthy you are, remembering how dirty you are, if you struggle, can I really come to God? Can I really sing and lift my hands and pray? Can I really even be used by God to prophesy? Can I really speak the word of God to someone? I don't know if I'm good enough for that. I'm going to say, believe the gospel, believer. Believe it. You are made perfect through Christ, not through your own works. You're never going to be more righteous than you are right now. Eternally righteous. Gift, alien righteousness through Christ. And it happens because God gives us grace and he drops this little seed of faith in us. So if you say, I don't know if I believe it, I kind of believe it. That's a seed of faith that the spirit has dropped in you right now. None of us can work up faith. None of us can just dig down and I'm going to believe that. No, Lord, that's what the disciples, the apostles said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The scriptures are a gift. That's what believers need to say. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We look at the world today. We look at what's going on all around the world. And my theology tells me that, this, that, that Jesus Christ is right now sitting on a throne and ruling and reigning all of creation. And he's making all things new. And he's bringing about the kingdom of God where all justice will be final. And that all pe- and peace will dwell and no tears will be shed and no pain and no more death. And my theology tells me that. And when I look to the news, I say, oh, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Unbelievers, put your faith in Christ. Believers, keep your faith in Christ. Let me pray. Father God, we believe, and I believe, that you gave these gifts for your church to build us up in love so that we would look more like the kingdom, would be a more diverse, better representation of who you are and the work you've done to redeem people from every nation, all ethnicities. Father, let us not uh, do what the church has done and kind of separate charismatic beliefs and charismatic gifts from good theology. Let us be a church that holds both, that we believe and we trust that you are at work even now, bringing people to faith, bringing people into your kingdom. And that you also have a desire that we, some of us would speak in tongues privately, mostly to build ourselves up, whatever that means to commune with you, whatever that means. And you have a desire for us to prophesy to one another, to speak the words of God in a contextualized way that kind of reveals the, the wickedness and the, and, the, and, the, and the weakness of our own hearts, brings comfort and encouragement and consolation to our brothers and sisters. And that we would do all this in such a way that unbelievers look in and go, I hope that's true. Because that kind of diversity, that kind of love, that kind of 
uh, knowing yourself and knowing what human flourishing looks like and what human brokenness looks like and that messiness, like I want to be a part of that. And Father, they would be cut to the heart for their unbelief. They'd be cut to the heart the way they look at Jesus and the way they've been treating Jesus and they would be brought to repentance, be given faith and they'd be our brothers and sisters. We pray that you would do that right now through the message of the gospel, through the power of the gospel. And as believers come forward this morning, first, we want to repent of our unbelief. We want to repent of our fickle affections for you and for the gospel. We turn from that and we turn back. We turn from our attempts to be righteous and we turn back to the perfect eternal righteousness of Christ given to us. And as we come to take the body, Father, and the blood, we eat it this morning, thankful. We eat it remembering that this body was broken for us and this blood was shed for us and that your work is what makes us acceptable. Your work is what makes us righteous. Your work is what makes us clean, not ours. So I pray that you would confirm that. I pray that this would be a sign and a seal for believers this morning to be taken Christ. Father, this is for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.